Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Steve Bernstein. Steve is the chairman of the San Diego Food Bank. The Food Bank is a leading hunger relief organization in San Diego. Last year, the Food Bank distributed 28 million pounds of food and served over 350,000 people per month. Steve, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Darren. So you have a really interesting background. I think you refer to it as a dynamic background. Take us back to your childhood. What was that like? What were the things that you were interested in? Growing up, I grew up in Ventura County, specifically Simi Valley. At the time, it was a small town. Honestly, I just loved people. I played sports, very um, active in school. But, you know, growing up in a small town and kind of knowing, feeling like you know everybody definitely gave me a lot of confidence, I think, to really connect to people. And so, honestly, it was a great childhood, very safe community, met a lot of, you know, great friends and great influences that really helped me, you know, kind of mold who I am today. I know you mentioned before that you had this toggle point where you had to choose between acting and baseball, which I think is pretty interesting. I don't know many folks who are who have those unique sets of skills. So tell me about that a little bit in terms of how you broke away from one or the other. Probably one of the hardest decisions. And you know, you, you put yourself in the situation and you have to really analyze where the opportunity is and, and what the future could hold. So it was a really defining moment in my life, actually. My dad was a prop master and set decorator in the TV business for 37 years. And that's how I actually got connected to the industry. And as a child, I had opportunities to be an extra and really get brought in my lens to see what that lifestyle is like, what it looks like. And it honestly, it was just a lot of fun. So I naturally wanted to gravitate towards it. And so my parents supported me. So I spent a lot of time learning different ways of acting, connecting with different people. I was on some, some small shows back in the day. My first claim to fame was, this will date me, but uh, The Waltons was my first show ever on. Honestly, I, I fell in love with the industry itself about entertainment, really entertaining people and being able to be that type of an individual. Well, I was also an athlete. I was playing baseball. And when I was 13, I was offered an opportunity for a role in a uh, sitcom years ago. And I was asked, if I make this decision, I have to give up baseball. And at the time, look, they were both very big passions of mine. But I felt like you only have so much time to become a baseball player, a professional athlete. And maybe I'd have the opportunity, if I was still interested in it, to pursue acting later. So obviously, baseball was my first passion. And uh, I made the tough decision, but honestly, the best decision for me. And so I chose the baseball route. And I had a very successful uh, career in baseball. I played not through high school, but also college. I was drafted professionally. And uh, unfortunately, my uh, story ends there as I was in a car accident, and that's what ended my, my baseball career. But definitely a, a great upbringing. I think I was exposed to things that just not everyone is, and I think that really changed my perspective on you know, who I am today and, and where I was headed. What did you learn from those experiences? Obviously, you know, I'm well familiar with, with uh, sports and the benefits of team sports, but what did you gain from that in baseball, playing professionally and being an actor? And how has that really informed your leadership style now? You know, one of the benefits that I had for baseball is being a, a competitive athlete. It allowed me to travel. So I think if I look back and I, I, I think about my baseball career, also my time as pursuing a child actor things like that. It exposed me to, I think, guiding principles that became my disciplines of success, you know, understanding what work ethic really looks like, 
understanding, paying attention to detail and how that matters in both, whether it's baseball or in acting. I mean, paying attention to detail is absolutely critical. The ability to communicate and connect with people, you know, being a catcher, I was a catcher playing baseball. So that's the captain on the field, really. I mean, if if you think about the position, it's the only position on the field where the game is played in front of you. And uh, you also are the connected from the dugout to the field. So it's absolutely critical that communication. So I think of those, those things, my social skills, my attention to detail. And then the third is, is my ability to communicate, not just from a broadcasting and, and presentation style, but really understanding the audience and putting myself into their shoes and really trying to engage in a different way than just telling my story or having a conversation. Yeah, so many great points there. I think about understanding the audience and the importance of empathy and putting yourself in their shoes. And then a lot of the work that I do with leaders is about how do you adapt your communication style for the other person? Because most people are tend to be self-oriented. I won't say self-absorbed, but self-oriented at least and think that their style, the people, the way that people want to be communicated with is the way that they communicate. And that's obviously fundamentally a false assumption that most people make. Exactly right. I think, you know, that you hit on a, a really, really important point. I mean, knowing your audience, how to connect with your audience, but also putting them first. And I think that's the biggest challenge that people face is I think they, they feel excited. They want to share. And I think sometimes that hurts their listening skills and their engagement skills. You know, when you kind of uh, react that way, you're not really connecting. You have a pretty interesting way or path that you discovered purpose. Can you tell me a little bit about how you discovered purpose in your life and your career? Yeah, you know, uh, for me, I wonder if it was by accident or not, but, you know, you, you live through life experiences. And, you know, going through as a child, I uh, came from a divorced family, broken home at a young age. I've been on my own since 13. So my parents uh, got divorced. I lived with my father. You know, I had great support from my mom. Um, but at the same time is I really created a path of independence and really trying to figure out things on my own. And so really it's trial and error, meeting incredible people. And I think the one thing that I would tell you, I had confidence in being able, able to ask, right? So I think about, you know, if I look back at my career, I didn't know what I wanted to be. After my baseball career was over, was trying to figure out like, what does the future hold? My number one thing I did was informational interviews. I ran around to people I respected and that I admired, or visibly, I could see some type of level of success. And I went around and I wanted to just honestly get 15 minutes of their time. I wanted to learn from things that I couldn't learn, whether it was in school or something, maybe my family or friends couldn't teach me. And so Going through those type of experiences is, is honestly how I found purpose because coming from a family where I think the first 10, 12 years, I felt like I had everything. And then having a broken home, you kind of feel like you lost everything and you're starting over. And as I went through, you know, you go through a lot of emotions, you, you go through a lot of experiences and then you find, you know, you hope to find something that's more meaningful than making money or, you know, achieving, you know, something for yourself. And so as I've moved through my career, I think the way that I found purpose was literally fulfilling and achieving goals and setting goals and continuing to work at at things. And then finding that what I was really good at or successful at was a gap for a lot of other people. And so it's an area where it's not taught. And so that really changed my lens in how I communicate and connect with people. I like serving. I like helping because there's so many people that did it for me. And so it's kind of a a pay it forward. But at the same time is it keeps me intellectually stimulated, growing and engaged. Yeah, I think you said something really important is you had the confidence to ask I think that just really underpins our success in so many ways. You know, for you, it was about figuring out career paths and and how you came upon purpose. But 
even more you know fundamental in terms of people growing their organizations, growing their businesses. It's just so important to have that confidence. What were what are some practical tips that you can give to people in terms of gaining that confidence to to ask someone for a, a quote unquote favor, if you will? Well, I think the number one thing you have to ask yourself is why 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 am I going to ask and why is it this person I'm going to ask? I think the other thing is you have to respect their time and understand where they're coming from. I think it's a really important factor that you're engaged for the right reasons and the right purposes. I think of mentorship a lot and sponsorship. You know, in my career, I would say in the early years of my career and probably even the last, probably till five, eight years ago, if you heard the term mentorship, it was kind of like trying to build a relationship with somebody that could get you somewhere opposed to building a relationship with someone that can invest in you and give you something to help you grow and actually get better. And so when I saw those type of, of differences, to me, the second piece is, is really critical. It's an investment in yourself that you're making. It's not a end to a mean or a means to an end. It's not trying to get somewhere. It's trying to fulfill or fill something within yourself. And so to me, I think that's, that's the biggest opportunity is one, you think about why you want this individual. What are you looking for them to provide you? Two is you understand and you put yourself in their shoes. I think the most important thing after that is the preparation, right? Preparing to go into that meeting, whether you have a five minute meeting, a 30 minute meeting, doesn't really matter, but it has to be purposeful and you need to be prepared because you're asking someone to give you something that they've earned, right? So if I think about it, I went to San Diego State, and that's where I ended up going to school. But for the last 20 years, I've learned from people that have gone to Harvard, Warden, Michigan, you know, Hilltop High School. You can gain from their knowledge and experience, but you definitely need to understand the why and be very prepared in going in into that. So I think those are the three things. And if you have those things, then you, you can walk into the situation and stay in control. And I think that's an important factor is being in control into those type of conversations and, and getting what you want out of it. And I also like the way you changed the lens. You changed it from not being so transactional. Okay, what can I get out of this person? What am I trying to achieve? But more of like an enduring relationship. I think about the mentors I've been lucky enough to have in, in my life, in my career from someone early on that helped guide me into consulting that paved the way to what I'm doing now. And then to other people more recently in terms of just being there to support me. And, and I hadn't thought about it in that perspective, but, but also I think about the give and take is making sure that you're, you're being respectful of their time at the very least, and you're providing other values to them as well. Yeah. You know, I think the one, one of the biggest things I think really separates a lot of successful people and people that have all the skill and all the ability. And, and honestly, probably sometimes better than the people that are in different roles is the fear. And so how do you work on the confidence factor? I'm trying to do it with my children. I do it with, you know, people that I come in contact with. I, you know, from a coaching perspective, you really focus on strengths. You try to help them understand the perspective. But I think that's a, a really big differentiator. It's not necessarily knowledge or aptitude or the want or desire. Sometimes it's just the fear. And that, to me, that can be taught through a process of, just like I explained, I think you can teach that confidence by giving people tools that they can rely on. So when they're in situations, they can excel. Yeah, I think it's tools, but also I think removing some of those impediments, some of those anchors in terms of self-limiting beliefs people have in their head because they don't have the, the right experience, they didn't go to the right school, they're not ready, they don't have the right skills. And so many times, those are really the tapes that we play in our own heads. It's not necessarily supported by objective data. That's very true. It's very true. And I think when I look at that type of a scenario, I think it's really important that, you know, you kind of take out the pencil and the, the paper and you break those things down. A lot of the stuff that I see and I, you know, I talk to people, you know, like I said, I was even talking to my kids about this going into high school, the fear of the unknown is sometimes what holds us back. And if we knew maybe we wouldn't be so fearful. So it's really trying to give a good visual, having those, those conversations. But I agree with you. You know, it's not as easy as 
people can present or maybe even I'm sharing today. I, I understand the, the effort and the work and the emotion and the, the legacy history that comes into each person's situation. But I think that's where a great leader comes from, right? If you're able to identify those things and invest in yourself and grow, then the, a way to pay that forward is to help others achieve things, right? And that's kind of what got me into service. That's what kind of keeps me in different industries and, and communities, that exact piece, because I, I see there's value there to add. That's something that others don't have. Absolutely. Yeah. You talked early on in terms of purpose and a focus on serving and helping. How did you actually make that shift and get involved in philanthropy and nonprofits? You know, so I've been a banker the last uh, about 23 years. I got into banking by accident. I was a political science psychology major at Singapore State, followed my path there and realized, you know, it just wasn't the, the direction I wanted to head. And so I went on a bunch of different interviews and I interviewed at a bank back in the day called Western Financial. And um, they offered me a job on their platform. And on their platform, it was really to get licensed and become an investment type of a banker and things like that. And, but I, I took the, the job for really one reason and one reason only. I did not have that background in finance. And you know, like I said, political science, psychology, I came from a, a broken home. I didn't really have that support to teach that. So I actually saw that first job as an internship for myself mentally. And I said, you know what? They're going to pay me. I'm going to learn the finance side, the banking side, so I can, I can be successful financially. I didn't know how to really even manage a bank account, let alone finance a house or a car. And through that, that's where I also found even more purpose to stay in the industry. I was dealing with customers that had the same gap I did. And so part of being in the industry, one of the things they ask you to do is to give back to the community. And so it felt task-driven, like it was part of my job, kind of like filling out a report. And so I did it without really understanding why. I did it because of all the reasons we were kind of talking about the mentorship, kind of the same thing, right? When I got involved in the nonprofit space, what I realized was it wasn't just about raising money. There was a tremendous amount of value that I could add by helping the organization and helping the constituents and people we serve. So I got into it by accident. But the reality is sometimes that those are the best reasons to get in because we, we actually find something that we didn't know we were really looking for. And so when you, when you talk about purpose, I try to find purpose in everything I do. My real purpose in life and who I am as a, as a leader and as a human being, I'm a servant leader. I'm a servant person. I like helping people achieve things that they didn't either know was possible, things that they needed. And I think the reason is, is because I'm fulfilled. I'm happy. I'm not happy and fulfilled by material things and money. I'm fulfilled with intellectual stimulation, connecting with people watching and helping and being a part of something that's bigger than me and having, you know, and having that type of purpose. So getting in the nonprofit space, one of the first nonprofits I got involved with was the Alzheimer's Association in San Diego. And the reason I joined them is my grandmother was going through dementia and Alzheimer's. And so the reason I, I share that story is because the one thing I did know about getting into the nonprofit space was I wasn't going to choose a nonprofit that the company thought I should. I needed something that I could connect to. And so when I joined that organization, I joined what I felt was for all the right reasons. But when I really got on the platform, that's when I found purpose. Because the need wasn't just helping, in this case, the end user. There was so much need that was whether it was operations, whether it was fundraising, whether it was, you know, helping the organization connect to other organizations, making real tough business and people decisions, things that I was very good at and doing in my day job. And so when you find, you know, found purpose. And then the other thing I'd tell you is now in the nonprofit space, I spend time and I focus hard on ways that I know I can deliver a large impact and areas that I can help thrive or help end the mission or fulfill the mission opposed to, you know, I get asked a lot 
to be involved in a lot of organizations. And I have to be very thoughtful of what they need and, and what I can deliver. But I think that's the ultimate definition of purpose is really putting the individual, the cause, the need, the problem at the center of everything you do and not thinking about any outcomes for you personally. Just thinking about all the work and the value you can add to Lyft. In return, what my experience is, you get lifted just like everything else. We all rise. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's very much a servant leadership view of purpose in terms of focusing on serving and helping other people. You know, I get caught sometimes, right? You know, I, I've been an executive coach. I do, I do a lot of uh, mentorship and sponsorship. And sometimes you want to solve people's problems all in one sitting. Sometimes you want to give them everything that they need right then. And you have to realize that nobody can really handle that much. And so I really believe in incremental improvement. I believe in setting goals. I believe in not taking too much on, but understanding what you're capable of doing. So incremental improvement is a really important fact for me because it's part of a growth mindset. It's uh, really about setting goals that are realistic and understanding, building a strategic plan or building a plan, understanding your resources and really thinking about how you're going to execute. And so to me, incremental improvement would remove a lot of stress and anxiety and fear out of a lot of people. But also, even when you run a business uh, or a nonprofit, you know, you can't raise it all in one day. You can't help everybody in one day. But if you continuously are measuring and progressing and moving forward and growing, then you're going to achieve it. And you're going to end up influencing and doing a lot more on the way and on your journey. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit too aspirational, but I do believe that every day there's an opportunity to get better in every way. So looking out through the lens of realism, I recognize that there's not always in every way, but I think that incremental improvement is really important, but that does take a lot of patience. It takes focus. It takes perseverance because I think most people, they want these overnight successes. They want, they want to read a book. They want to do what an author says or what a TED Talk speaker says and get step change improvement overnight. And so that does require some persistence and patience. You know, one of the things that I shared earlier, and I, I think I'll spend just a minute on it real quick, is one of the things that I benefited in sports and in acting, the word discipline. And discipline doesn't mean getting in trouble. Discipline is meaning that you have the ability to follow through with your commitment of what you said you were going to do. And I agree with you. It's like, let's say we're going to you know, go on a diet and I want to lose weight and I fall off one day and I you know, go get ice cream or whatever. The amount of stress or pressure someone might put on themselves because they cheated in their mind, it can be the derailer of you achieving your goal. Switching the mindset and saying, I'm disciplined, I'm disciplined, I'm disciplined. I also need to have fun and balance in life. What does this small little cheat day really impact where I'm headed? The reality is it means nothing in the long scheme if you get right back on track. So I think sometimes we are mentally tougher on ourselves because of that immediate gratification. And the reality is that's where the preparation also comes in. You know, trying to understand how long should it take? So for someone, I mean, how long is it taken for you to be successful, to write your book, to build your brand? If someone saw you today, they make it, you make it look easy. But the reality is all of those, you know, all that work and sacrifice that a lot of people don't see. So I think it's really important you create visibility and truth and transparency into, you know, goal achievement and things like that. Yeah. And I like to say it's bumpy on the way up. <laughs> and it's it's not always a, a linear uh, path straight upwards. And I think you touch on a few things. I think it's giving yourself grace. And when you do have the you have the ice cream or you fall short of a personal goal or a leadership goal you're trying to achieve, but also I think acknowledging yourself, acknowledging the fact that you're trying and doing things because change is hard for I wouldn't say most people, probably for everybody in reality, and acknowledge the successes that you're having when you make those changes, but also just acknowledge when you try and maybe it doesn't work out exactly the way you want it to. 
That's right. I think the acknowledgement, I think, is really important. I believe in uh, accountability buddies, right? I believe in putting things out, out in the universe, sort of speak. I believe in saying what you want to accomplish. And we all know whatever our success, what we want to accomplish, it's not easy, no matter what. People can make it look easy. They might have more skill, more experience. You might not see the grind behind the scenes. But the reality is it's just not easy. And so I think we need help and we need support and we need positive influences to help us. And we also need people to tell us the truth. And I think that's the really important factor. And a lot of people, they want to surround themselves with people that make them feel good. And the reality is, is they're not the ones to make yourself feel good. It's you by your investment and by the things you do for yourself will make you feel good. I'll say this. I believe in the, there's a saying when you go on an airplane and I, I think about this all the time and I, I hold myself to this and my kids and I teach it to anyone that I, I coach or I, I work with. When you go on an airplane and they start giving you the directions of what to do, the first thing they say is when the, if there's air cabin pressure and the oxygen mass drops, put it on yourself before you put it on someone else, even if it's your infant child. You can hear people arguing, oh, I won't do that. I'll put that on my kid first. And the reality is it's such an important lesson and in such an important message, which is telling you, invest in yourself, ensure that you are in the, uh, you have the ability, the skill, the time, the commitment to actually go help somebody else. So invest in yourself first before you help other people. I see, I see a lot of times, a lot of people, they neglect themselves. They are fulfilled or feel fulfilled by helping others, but yet they're not doing the work for themselves. And to me, I think that's one of the biggest opportunities for people and growth, for leadership, for success, for the confidence factor we were talking about, right? We're looking outward for confidence. And the reality is we have to invest and build the confidence inward and then bring it out. So it's a little bit opposite. I've learned that through the years. That's what I teach and I coach. It's a self-discovery type of method. I think it's really, really important that people start with them before they start helping others. You can't serve others unless you are in the best possible position for yourself. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think that points to self-care, self-development, because you can't be a great leader, inspiring leader, if you're just totally burnt out, you're running on fumes, you're not centered, you're not patient. There's so many things that are really important to be a leader. And I, I totally agree that you have to work on yourself so that you can serve other people. Absolutely. If not, there's major risk for yourself. And quite frankly, there's major risk for the people that you're trying to serve. And you might have all the best intention, but if you're not prepared or you don't have the skill, or the time or the ability to do it, you're actually putting them in a worse situation than being able to maybe raise your hand and say, unfortunately, I'm not the right person at this time, right? So I think that that's where we, you know, being in the business I am of serving, that's where I always really keep the customer at the center of everything I do. And whether the customer is in business or a customer is my wife, the person I am talking to, I'm talking my thought process and focus needs to be about their best interest, not where I put my interest into their interest. That's where I think you have to be. And it takes time, it takes skill, it takes discipline, all the things we're talking about. But truly, that's where you become you know, selfless when you can do something like that. I'd love to switch gears a little bit. And what I'd hope to talk to you about is, is the food bank. And talk to me about how you got involved in the food bank what you're trying to solve, and just also the problem of food insecurity. I was just blown away in terms of understanding the magnitude of that problem. Absolutely. So um, it's been nine years. I got involved in the uh, food bank nine years ago. And, you know, my wife is a teacher. She's a primary school teacher. She teaches kindergarten. And if you know anything about a kindergarten teacher, they are saints and angels. They, uh, the patience, the commitment. And if you think about what they are tasked with every day, bringing in a precious child that really doesn't know anything except what's been influenced around home and turning them into productive, 
students and first graders, that is a transformative year. And so talk about patience and talk about service. I get a lot of that leadership and investment and coaching from my wife with that background. And what I learned going through the educational side and understanding from my wife was the food insecurity problem at school. And so what really got me involved to start in the food bank was the backpack program. And that connected me and gave me some purpose because I know many of those kids in the community that I live in. And I had no idea that my neighbors and people around me uh, were food insecure or having challenges because there's no sign that says I'm having a challenge, right? And so that's what it started. When I got involved in the food bank, it was a much different organization at the time. It was a much smaller organization. And, you know, I think they, they had a vision and a mission of helping people with food insecurity, but I don't think they had a strategic plan and also maybe the vision of what potential. And so being involved in the organization, you know, the first couple of months, uh, I got a good feel for the organization. I understood where the, the mission and the vision was, and it aligned with not only what I saw as an important factor in the community, but I saw value that I could bring to the organization in growing the organization to continuously helping serving the needs. When I started to uncover in the food bank who we serve, children, active military, you know, service workers, you name it, seniors, homeless, it's a really diverse segment. And in San Diego County, it's a large number. And so really the opportunity that has given me purpose was the food insecurity need is so great. One organization can't do it on their own. And so I saw an opportunity to not only help grow this organization, bring some business acumen, some stability. You know, a lot of nonprofits, they run like a nonprofit. And what I mean by that is they run like a charity and they don't run like a business. And generating donations is like generating revenue for a business. And so what I really tried to help with the organization is help them understand that they're a business and not a charity. And if we're going to be able to really achieve our mission, we have to do things differently. We have to raise money differently. We have to collaborate differently. We have to partner differently. We have to think strategically. So that's what's got me involved and kept me in the food bank, right? Is I saw the impact. It was in my life. It wasn't my children. It wasn't my home. It was my wife and not just her school, but many of schools and many children of that age. And so I found a little bit of purpose there. But once I got in and saw what the organization, what was possible, then I found a different purpose. And so, and it's continued to build from there, right? And so I look back nine years and we were serving, you know, a couple hundred thousand people. Then it got up to a, a number of around 300, 350,000. We did about 12 to $18 million in, in revenue, which if you think about food and, and everything added in, that's, that's what goes in there. This year, we are feeding, at a peak, we were feeding over 600,000 people, and we are doing over $100 million in revenue in nine years. And you know that is for multiple reasons, right? Leadership, strategy, the need building out more awareness, leveraging better resources. We use our board, I think, differently than most nonprofits. We really leverage the communities that they serve in. Uh, we leverage their network. So we really try to be strategic and creative, just like any other business would be, because at the end of the day, we're not making widgets and we're not selling anything. We're feeding people. And when you're feeding people, you have to be on the top of your game. You have to be strategic because the need never, it never ends. That's what's kept me there. Do you define the term food insecurity for people? Because I don't think most people know. I know I didn't as of a few years ago, even. And just also the magnitude of the problem, not just here locally in San Diego, but nationwide across the US. I mean, I think the, the misconception is we're a very prosperous nation, but the food insecurity issue is a, is a massive one for us. It is massive. And I think that one challenge that a lot of people face 
is unless you can see it, feel it or taste it, you don't know about it, right? And so it's really about bringing visibility to what the need is. So what, San Diego has 3 million people, right? And we're feeding combined with the other agencies about a million two, a million three. When you think about what makes up that population, I mentioned children, active military, seniors, but the reality is what we've seen through the pandemic is we've seen unemployment impact. We've seen the service industry impact. So a lot of the people where you are today, where you want, maybe you walk to your star- local Starbucks and you get your coffee and the person behind the counter at Starbucks, who's making 15 bucks an hour serving your coffee and you go on on your day, that could be a person that we're serving in this current environment, but you don't realize it because of the level of need, the level of where the economy is, the impact, what it takes to, you know, living wage wise. So we hear a lot in the the media, minimum wages rising, things like that. Well, there's impacts to all of that. Just by moving minimum wage to, let's say, 15 bucks an hour doesn't solve the food insecurity problem. It actually could create more of an issue because maybe certain small businesses can't hire those people anymore. But at the end of the day, when you actually break out $15 per hour and you base that off a 40-hour work week, no matter really where you're living in the country, you're kind of at that poverty level or just above it. And so if you take that and you scale it across the country, it's tenfold. You can go to LA, it's greater. You can go to go to Des Moines, Iowa. I was talking to a food bank in San Antonio, Texas, that we've partnered with. We've learned a lot from the organization. Same challenges in faith in San Antonio. So it's not a regional issue. It's not something that's just in San Diego or, or in a community that you're at. It's global, actually. Not to go off topic, but one of the interesting subject matters that's up right now that I'm hearing in the news is Elon Musk came out and asked a a really bold question and said, what would it take financially to end world hunger? And I think the World Hunger Association came out and said something around $6 billion. And they're talking about that right now strategically. And honestly, it's not going to be about food. It's going to be getting the food into people's hands. We have an abundance of food in the country. It's a matter of distribution. It's a matter of education. It's a matter of figuring out ways to actually get the food to the people that need it. So while the need is great and it continues to grow, logistically, how do you get the food into those people's hands? We talked a little bit about fear before, right? And, you know, ego plays a a lot into food insecurity. It sounds like a very like simple thing. Oh, go, go buy a, you know, 59 cent, you know, taco at Taco Bell or something like that. That's not how this works. And I think we try to simplify that in our minds, but that's not uh, how food insecurity works. Food insecurity works is a constant problem because a lot of people don't know where to go. They don't know how to get to the food. And if you walked into a grocery store and the affordability factor is not there, you're not walking into a grocery store anymore. So that's the real key. One of the other things I'll tell you is for our organization, for the Jacob and Cushman San Diego Food Bank, one of the things I'm most proud of is every dollar donated, every single dollar that's donated to our organization, we deliver five meals to people. Five meals. That's with high protein, all healthy products to deliver to, to the end user. So they're not eating fast food. They're, you know, we're talking peanut butter, high proteins like tuna chicken, vegetables, things like that. And so a donation to a food bank goes a long way. I think it's 93 cents, 94 cents of every dollar that is donated to us goes to programs, goes to services. So that's another thing is I think in this industry, the, great, the need is so great, but we run very efficiently. But it's still the gap is We have massive amounts of food, and how do you get it to the people that actually need it? That's the real food insecurity issue right now. 
So distribution. You also mentioned something interesting in terms of the mission and vision of your organization, in terms of not just giving out food, but actually getting at the root cause and solving the problem. What are you guys actually doing to address some of those underlying issues? You know, well, one is we've expanded a little bit, right? So when you think about food insecurity or you think about people that are in the space of needs of what I feel are, are basic necessities, you know, being a parent, you're told and you're taught that you have to provide food, a roof and clothing to your child. And we stopped that at a certain point in this country. And the reality is the need continues, but yet the services don't. And so for us, number one is education. That is absolutely critical. So collaboration with other agencies and organizations to get to their constituents and, and the people that they can connect with in the community, to be able to ensure that people know they can get, one, they can get food, and two, they know where to get it. And three, it is a process that is so simple. And we ultimately, I mean, the, the number one thing we make sure about our people and the people we serve is they have dignity, pride. They know that this isn't about getting helping hands and services. This is about an investment in them and helping them lift and grow. So it's really about the messaging as well, because you want to make sure that those barriers to entry are easy for people and they're not intimidating or, or scared. I think the, the second thing we do is, like I, I mentioned earlier, we collaborate a lot with other organizations. We want to make sure that we can, in San Diego in this case, we serve the full county, that we don't have gaps in key areas of where, you know, uh, unemployment or other things might hit at during times. I think that's big. The third thing is this, we're really thinking about the full individual, you know, 100% of the individual. And so when I think or we think about someone that's food insecure, they're not just food insecure in, you know, fruits, vegetables, having breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner. You know, you think about it as many of these people have pets, right? So you want to be able to support from a, a, um, a female sense, feminine hygiene products. Those are expensive. We're, we've become a diaper bank over the last couple of years. Diapers are extremely expensive. So when you think about, you know, a family going to the grocery store and they've got $30 and their baby needs diapers, they need formula and they need food. What are they going to choose? Most likely diapers or formula for their baby and they're going to sacrifice the food for themselves. Or, and a lot of times we saw even through the pandemic, people will sacrifice food to feed their pets and take care of their pets. And so what we're trying to do is really ensure that we are connected with the community and we collaborate and we can have wraparound services, not necessarily be the ones that provide them, but make sure that we are connected and we can provide those services and connectivity to the person. So it's not just the wraparound services and the continued services and the education piece, you know, as we, as we continue to move forward. But it, it really is about ensuring that they can make the right choice at the right time and they can really take care of their family and their true family needs. So that's what we're, we're working on and, and continuing to expand. So when you think of ending the root causes of, of hunger or poverty, these are the areas. And then, like I said, our job as a food bank is not to be everything to everyone. But it is our job to ensure that we are building strategically alliances, collaborations with other organizations, with other agencies that are able to provide those full services. So they don't have to get one thing from one organization and try to figure out how to get the other from an, you know, another organization. It's really about us collaborating, working around, because if you're talking to a person in need, you might only have that one opportunity to really help them with wraparound services, not just the food insecurity piece. That's your opportunity. You have their ear, you have their trust because they need it. So that's where we're headed. I'm really proud of it. The work that we're doing, the collaborations we're doing, we're seeing literally the true definition of collective impact. We're starting to see the fruits of some of that labor still living in this pandemic. What are some of those impacts? Like, what are you seeing beyond serving people meals and food and feminine hygiene products? Like, what kind of outcomes are you guys seeing? Well, 
we have tremendous stories where, you know, the food bank isn't just like many organizations. They're not set up to provide you services for the rest of your life. The idea of nonprofit services is to help you in the time of need to help you get to where you want to be or get help you get back on your feet or help you just get to some normalcy or some foundational success. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot more engagement. We're on the phone a lot, a lot. And as a board member and a board chair, we always are very cautious and conscious of not separating duties of what board duties and what the organization operations should be doing. But I would tell you, I've never seen so many more active people involved, meaning active uh, fundraising, active in idea generation, be willing to invest their time to develop new strategies, to do things differently in this space. And so if you asked me three years ago, and this goes for, honestly, not just the food bank, but really any nonprofit, how many nonprofits do you work with and collaborate with? They would say, oh, well, we partner with a couple or, you know, or we do similar things as them, or those would be the types of conversations and feedback you'd receive. And today, what I hear is who can we better partner with to help serve the mission instead of trying to be everything to everyone or creating that industry competitiveness that really, when you think about it, especially in the nonprofit space, when two nonprofits become competitive, the only loser is the person that needs those services. And so that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a dynamic change. And then with the dynamic change and that education and, and people having more conversations, I'm starting to see more confidence in who we're serving. I'm starting to see more people ask for services opposed to us having to find them. So I'm starting to see improvement in some of those gaps that I think we had to, the last 10 to 15, maybe even 50 years, actively go after. I'm seeing people start meeting in the middle because as we continue to educate and lift, and meet people and lean in, others are moving in and we're doing it collectively. So the reality is this, that person I couldn't get to three years ago, I might not have to get to them directly anymore. Someone else in the organization or someone else in the industry or someone else that has an interest in, in helping and serving knows, our, knows what we're capable of doing and they're an extended voice now making those connectivities and, and connections. So. That's why we're also helping and serving more people because we're able to find and engage the people that need the service. What a great example of scaling your impact. So it's not just, you're just getting more out of each person through partnerships, through greater collaboration, through affiliations between nonprofits. So much outstanding work you guys are doing. Thank you. And you know what? It's honestly allows us to do what we do even better. And that's the thing, you know, we, we're able to connect differently the community. We're able to focus really and have laser focus on the key priorities that make the tr tremendous impact in this community. And that to me is a lot. We've removed some of the minutia, so to speak, and we're able to create a little bit more velocity, a little bit more laser focus. And honestly, what I've seen and what I'm most proud of I'm seeing a, a, a more of a, a trust in the community, right? And because that's the most important thing. If, you know, you asked earlier, like, how do we end food insecurity? How do we get closer to solving? It's relationships. It's trust. It's the same thing we would be doing, coaching and, and developing a sales team in an organization. It really comes down to those foundational things. You have to create an environment that fosters it. You have to communicate appropriately, meaning that your audience has to understand what you're trying to communicate and who and how, and then collectively working together towards that greater purpose. It's really interesting. You know, every board I've been on, you know, you have term limits, you know, you go through and you might have two, three-year terms or something of that sort. We've had people roll off the board after full service. And we don't necessarily have 
you know, a subcommittee for them to join. They can join advisory councils and things like that. But many of them have stayed connected to the work. They're still very active in fundraising, very active in distribution, you know, because we have agencies and sites that we, that we work with and very actively engaged. And some of them have rolled off a year ago. That would not have happened, in my opinion, in the nonprofit space several years ago. Maybe that pandemic has really humbled and grounded a lot of people, and I hope so, to put what really is important in life and maybe finding meaning and purpose for them. But during this time, I've seen a lot more involvement, engagement, continuity, people asking to be involved, but asking to be involved for the right reasons. And that to me is meaning we're on the right track, keep influencing what we're doing, and uh, we'll make changes. You know, one other thing, I'm sorry, but one other thing I'll add to this, Darren, is it's an, we're in an interesting dynamic in the economy and how the makeup of, of our population is. We hear a lot about, you know, where the wealth is right now, right? Most people over 70 are holding on to the wealth. And so there's a wealth transfer. There's a generational shift that we're moving through. One of the things I'm really proud of and I think is influencing the environment that we live in today and why people are wanting to get involved and give is our new generation. Those grandkids of these wealthy individuals are making the influential change of their grandparents. I've seen where a lot more of the younger generation, the kids that are in high school today, middle school, high school, college, they want a different type of life and pursuit of happiness than I think the previous generations did, which was probably uh, wealth abundance and wealth preservation and wealth built. And they want to see impact. So a lot of the things I'm, people I'm talking to of our donors, they want legacy impact today. They want their money to go to the organization, but they want to know what our strategic plan is. They want to know that we're collaborating with others and that we're actually in it for the mission. And that, to me, is an, a generational influence that's happening right now that is a huge opportunity to listen to multiple generations because they all kind of are heading towards the same place. And you need to leverage that influence to get there. But I'm working with three donors right now that uh, probably five years ago, they wouldn't have come in the same room together. Now, they're like, how do we do something bigger? You know, so I like the legacy feel that's in the marketplace right now. I also like the younger generation influence. I think with that and the other things I mentioned, I'm bullish and really confident that we're going to continue working towards really solving this tremendous issue. Yeah, you make a great point. And I think a, a lot about how many problems we could solve or at least make a dent in if more people actually gave back. And I love that you gave some a wide range of examples of how people can get, can get involved from fundraising to idea generation to their time to thinking about how you can do something differently, relationships, collaboration. What do you say to people? Because I, I know there's probably so many people that are listening and who are out there who want to give back, especially during a holiday season, you're thinking about it and they have, I believe people have very good intentions but it needs to be easier for people to actually give back, whether it's to the food bank or other philanthropies or other nonprofits. Like, what are some recommendations so people can get involved and make it easier for those people? So I'll tell you two things. I think number one, if you're talking about from a donation standpoint or financial standpoint, today, I think the number one thing that's helping the nonprofit space is technology. The ability to connect with customers differently than using just the traditional mail system and using mailers. Being able to donate and connect to, the, to an organization electronically or, or technology is huge. But honestly, the number one thing that anybody can do is get involved. I don't know if most people know this, but if you look at the balance sheet and income statement of your financials of nonprofits, you talk about doing more with less. Money is not being invested into the employees and the people that work there. These organizations are run because of volunteers. 
So the number one thing you can do is volunteer. The food bank is run 100% on volunteers. So, you know, we have, I think, 70 employees, but literally, if we don't have volunteers every single day, we can't open our doors. We can't do our distribution sites. We can't do the things that are necessary. Volunteering is easy. All you have to do is sign up. All you have to do is show up. And I believe once you volunteer one time in any organization, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's the Children's Museum, the Alzheimer's Association, or the food bank, you'll find some type of connectivity there. And you'll see that there's, hopefully, you'll look for an opportunity of where you can add value. And to me, that's the number one thing you can do, volunteer. Just get involved. So this holiday season, you know, if you're in a Albertsons or Vons for the food bank, you can donate five bucks and you can donate an entire, that's, uh, what did we say? That's 25 meals for five bucks. You could do something as simple as that. But the reality is, I guarantee you, if you're listening to this and you don't live in San Diego and you live in another community, and I promise you, your community is having the same challenges we're having, call your local food bank and get involved. I guarantee you, you'll find purpose there and you'll continue to find ways to stay engaged and continue to help. It might be your time. It might be your resources. It might be your knowledge. It might be you just Honestly, you might have a great social media network and great platform. And by you just adding and, and creating some awareness of the organization, that could be enough. So it can be as little or as much as you really want to get involved. But one thing I will promise you this, every organization needs your help. Absolutely. So align it with something you're really interested in, something that you feel passionate about, and then if it was me, I would highly suggest to that local organization in your community and just ask, how can I help? If the first question is just raise money, ask why, get a better understanding, because a lot of organizations in the nonprofit space need money. And when they ask for money, it could be a turnoff because you might be showing up to do more or wanting to add value in a different way. Don't get caught off guard by the ask understand the why. And when you understand the why, then you're going to be able to kind of figure out where you're going to add value. That'd be my, my suggestion. That's great. I mean, so many great suggestions, just everything counts. I mean, you gave an example of five bucks feeding 25 or providing 25 meals, providing ways to get in there using your social media platform, or you're just, if you have a platform you speak or but giving back in time. And I think everyone needs to volunteer in the way that's authentic to them and makes sense for them. I know there's a wonderful nonprofit I'm involved with called the Honor Foundation. It helps Navy SEALs and other special operators transition into the civilian world. And I don't always have the time to partner and coach one of the fellows for the transition, but I do have time to always promote the, the foundation to bring awareness, to do events that, that raise money for it even if I don't have that time. So I think it's really important if you do have that inclination to give back in some way to something that really resonates with you to find a way and be creative about it. I agree. You know, one of the things we talked about earlier was, you know, I got involved in nonprofit work, one, because I thought I had to, and two was my passion and my purpose. I, I really uncovered through my wife. And one thing I will tell you that I'm really, really proud of, and I would highly suggest this to anyone that has children, get your children involved. Uh, getting involved in nonprofit work is not to benefit you or benefit your business or benefit you know, your personal gain. Those are all outcomes that will and can happen. But I think one of the things I'm tremendously proud of is my kids are heavily involved. And uh, my 17-year-old, my 14-year-old, uh, bo you know, both boys and my daughter who's nine, they're involved. They wanna be involved. They ask really important questions. They don't understand why maybe some of their friends or others are food insecure. They might not see it. They might not be aware of it. But the reality is, is it's never too early to learn. And if you are going to want to be in this space, model what success should look like. And so it's not, you know, we talked about leveraging your platforms. Man, my best platform that I've modeled and invested in is my wife and three children. Because when they're somewhere 
or they're asked a question and they're like, oh, my dad does this. Or where were you on Saturday? And my car, my son Carson would be like, oh, we were at a food distribution and we were able to give turkeys and, and fresh produce to families in need. And that is such a shocking answer to one of his peers. And what's, what I love about it is it's engaged a lot of his friends. If it's important to my son, it's now become important to some of his friends. And so it does continue to have that domino effect. I also will tell you, I, I feel like it's had a really profound impact on my children of valuing things that are in life that are really important, opposed to maybe the way I, I, I grew up and, and thinking about physical things or, you know, uh, the abundance of what you thought you needed to make you happy. I'm really proud of that. So I, I would, I would tell you that that's the one area I, I think people you just continue to model it, but share it, share it with the people you work with, share it with the people, you know, whether you go to church or, you know, temple or you're part of other organizations, but most importantly, share it at home and get your family engaged. It is one of the best things that you can do for your family. You know, it, it'll, it'll bring you even closer together, in my opinion. Great advice and just a way to pay it forward and really amplify your impact. Well, Steve, I, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy and uh, do appreciate you coming on today. Hey, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I've enjoyed not only today, but honestly, the process of getting to know you and engaged. You're an exceptional leader and there's obvious so many reasons on why you're successful. But the reality is for you to do something like this and really get to the, to the root and the cause where people can learn and grow. And you're doing a, a, a tremendous service for a lot of people. So I'm honored that I was chosen to, to be a part of this. And I just thank you. And I, I look forward to continuing and building off of our relationship. So thank you, Darren. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate those kind words. Definitely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.